Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his seven-week presentation, Matthew and Luke on Jesus, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is part two of week six, titled Temple, recorded in March 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. But you have turned it into a cave of brigands. This comes from a very different context in Israel's history and a very different scenario. In chapter 7 of Jeremiah, God commands the prophet to enter into his temple and condemn those who worship God there because outside of their worship, which is they follow all the rituals properly, they offer the right sacrifices, they do everything they're supposed to according to God's commands about worship, but then they go out and they don't implement uh, what those commands mean in the rest of the world. It's like those who might come to receive uh, the Blessed Sacrament and then go out and not be changed by it to go on committing atrocities in the world. When Jeremiah calls the temple a den of, a den of brigands or of thieves, he doesn't mean that bad things are going on inside the temple. He means bad things are going on outside and people are coming to the temple like brigands who are trying to escape the consequences of their action. All we need to do is offer animal sacrifices and we'll be good with God. And then we can go out and continue to do what we're doing. Uh Uh-uh, says Jeremiah. Not only does that not work, but if you rely, if you abuse the sanctity of this place to make it a, a place of refuge for your crimes... God will not protect you here. Now, this is another common feature of temples in the ancient world. You, if you clasp your hand upon an altar, and if someone's chasing you to kill you, they can't touch you. You, you have the protect. That's why we call it a sanctuary. It's a place of sanctuary. Well, Jeremiah says, if you, if you abuse, if you ignore God's covenant out there, nothing that you do in here will protect you. The sanctity of this place will not protect you. You say this is the temple of the Lord, check out what the Babylonians are about to do to it. They're going to come and destroy it because God will let them to to teach you a lesson that you can't rely on the place uh, outside the context of covenant. That's what that means. Now, both of those passages are pretty easy to understand. When you put them together, as Jesus does in Mark, Matthew, and Luke, you get a bit of a problem. How do these two scenarios relate? The temple will be accessible to non-Jews who observe God's covenant, but people are somehow turning it into a cave of brigands by doing what they're doing here. It's really hard to decipher how Jesus' action relates to these words. And again, contrast this with John's gospel. Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. That's pretty clear cut. I understand that even. But this other thing I don't understand. Um, At least I don't understand how it relates to Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, in the 30s AD. Because there's, there's no way to understand how exchanging currency or selling sacrificial animals would have prevented Gentiles from worshiping God in this temple. There was a whole area of the temple strictly 
set apart for Gentiles to worship the God of Israel, just like Isaiah says. So it's really incomprehensible. It's not obvious, in other words, how the words relate to the actions. So I would suggest that we need to look for the significance of Jesus' action outside of his own context and within the context of the evangelists themselves. I mentioned this, I think, at the beginning of this series. All the Gospels are post-70 documents, post-70 AD. They all presuppose the destruction of the temple by the Romans in the year 70. Now, why why would that make a difference? Well, um, as the prelude, the the event which triggered this war with the Romans uh, was actually, to take a step back, Uh, Why was there a war between the Jews and the Romans? Well, because the Roman governor of the time, not Pilate, who had long since been fired, uh, the Roman governor of the time attempted to plunder and access the temple treasury where people donated their money for the use of the temple. This was God's money, and the Roman governor attempted not only to obtain it, but also to obtain it against the will of its custodians, the priests, And so the priests resisted, and uh, he massacred thousands of Jews in the city. Um, Sometime after this catastrophe, because he couldn't get to the temple, the Jews wouldn't let him in. They fortified the temple so he couldn't get in. Uh, After that time, we're told by the historian of 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 this age, Josephus, a Jewish historian who wrote about all this, he said that in the year 66 A.D., Something happened in the temple, something that had never happened before. Now, the temple, you know, originally built by Solomon in the 8th century B.C., destroyed by the Babylonians in the 6th century B.C., restored at the end of the 6th century B.C. by the Persians. Now we're 400, 300, 200, 100. We're almost 500 years that this temple has been standing. Not once did what was about to happen had ever happened before. Now, what happened in the year 66 AD? The son of the high priest, who was the temple captain, the man in charge of the security of the temple, um, rallied together a good portion of the priests, and they said, we are now going to institute a new law. And the law is, we will accept no gift, that is, say, an offering, either a sacrifice, any kind of offering, from a foreigner, from a Gentile. We will not accept an offering from a, from a foreigner here, any kind of attempt to, uh, to worship the God of Israel in this place. Why? Well, they weren't xenophobes, actually. The reason why Josephus states in his history very clearly, the reason why was because um, offering sacrifices on behalf of Caesar, offering sacrifices to God, on behalf of the health, for the health of Caesar, an intercessory prayer, basically, was how the Jews demonstrated their allegiance to the Roman Empire. They couldn't worship the emperor, right? That was against their religion, against the covenant. And the emperors knew it, so they said, okay, we'll pay for you to offer sacrifices on our behalf, and that will be a signal that you are loyal subjects. Well, by saying no foreigner can offer things here, they're saying, uh-uh, Caesar, you've got to send us a new governor. You have to set things right This place and its money belongs to God, not to you. This, says Josephus, was the foundation of the war which would lead to the destruction of the temple. Caesar ignored the the message, sent an army, and uh, four years later, uh, the temple fell. So only one time in the temple's entire history 
were Gentiles forbidden to pray or offer things there. And that was in the year 66. And it's what caused the temple's destruction, which I would argue is what caused the evangelists to write these gospels. Now, what about that other part, a cave of brigands? Well, cave of brigands, you made it into a cave of brigands. Well, brigands are highwaymen, right? Go highway robbers. But uh, Josephus, the historian, uses the term brigand to refer to, as a kind of slur, against those who rebelled against Rome. And during the war, during those four years of that war, one faction of these brigands, who called themselves the Zealots, by the way, they didn't exist in the time of Jesus, uh, they, they were a, a, an outcome of this outbreak of this conflict, a, a group of priests who were called the Zealots uh, occupied the temple sanctuary, and they held it as a fortress, both against the Romans and against other factions of rebels. And they engaged in a lot of warfare in the temple precinct and spilled blood there, which is sacrilege, says Josephus. So Josephus has this image on the one hand that the war began because Gentiles were forbidden to worship there. And on the other hand, that what caused God to abandon his temple to the Romans was because Jews, these brigands, had holed up in this temple as though it were their cave and had spilled blood there. So just as the first temple fell because of Jewish um, violations of the covenant, so, says Josephus, the second temple fell for basically the same reasons. So that combination, a cave of brigands and no Gentiles allowed, that combination of conditions did not exist in the time of Jesus, but it did exist in the time of the evangelists. Now, if I'm an evangelist and I'm writing to a community who wants to know how can the world we, we, we are living in be evidence of the kingdom of God, where the Romans have destroyed the architectural sacrament of God's kingdom, they claim their gods were responsible for this victory, not ours, and all Jews, perhaps including many of us, are paying taxes no longer to our temple and our God, but to the pagan deity of Rome. How is that good news? Somehow, the, the evangelists have to turn that have to read behind this apparent defeat of all that the kingdom of God meant, and they have to find a victory in there. They have to find how is this somehow revealing God's power rather than God's powerlessness. If we can't figure that out, how can we speak of Jesus as declaring good news that God's power is now being made manifest in the world? They wanted to explain, they wanted to connect these two events, and they did so in this way. After Jesus does what he does in the temple, he leaves, he comes back, and the temple leaders meet him there the next time. They weren't really crazy about him doing a repeat uh, act there. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus doesn't answer them. He says, where did John the Baptist's authority come from? From God, or did he make up this whole thing himself? And they are unable to answer him because they're not willing to say John wasn't a prophet from God because if they did, they would lose the support of the people. They fear the people, the same people who welcomed Jesus in as their king a couple days earlier. Yikes. These are leaders who are deficient in authority. And so they're challenging Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Um, if Jesus gives them the wrong answer, they can call up Pilate and say, hey, there's a guy here who's challenging Roman rule. 
Well, Jesus deflects the question by throwing it back at them. And then he says, look, I'll tell you a parable about a vineyard. A guy owned a vineyard. He sent, uh, he gave it to tenants to take care of. The tenants refused to pay their dues to the vineyard owner. The vineyard owner sent his son to collect. They killed the, the vineyard owner, owner's beloved son so that they could claim the inheritance of this place. Well, this is an allegory of the temple leaders controlling Jerusalem and rejecting the true ruler, the true Messiah. And it says they realized that this was spoken against them, and so they resolved to do away with Jesus. Now, before they did that, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do to these tenants? They said, oh, he's going to come and destroy them. Notice the connection there. In the year 30, thereabouts, Jesus got in trouble with the leaders of the temple, the Roman-appointed leaders of the temple. A generation later, the descendants of those same leaders would raise a revolt against Rome, which would lead to their destruction and the destruction of the temple. Jesus says, the owner of the vineyard will come to destroy them. There's the connection. The destruction of the temple is being linked to the destruction of Jesus by the gospel authors. And to drive the point home, they have Jesus. Did anyone see that Tom Cruise movie, Minority Report, about the, how they, they're able to, sort of, in the future, they, they can detect crimes before they happen? Um, it was, I think, based on a Philip K. Dick novel. Anyway, um, this is sort of Minority Report Jesus. He condemns the temple leaders for a crime their descendants have not yet committed. Because... Because the, the behavior of the temple leaders, in, as they're portrayed in Matthew and Luke, mirrors Josephus' portrayal of the temple leaders a generation later that would lead to the destruction of Jerusalem. So there's some connection being drawn here between the body of Jesus being destroyed and the body of the temple being destroyed a generation later. Jesus makes this connection, or at least the evangelists have him make that connection, their audience would know exactly what they were talking about because they lived through this, probably. Right? Okay, so that's the whole backdrop to this weird expression. This place is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a cave of brigands. He's making a prediction here. He's not describing, he's predicting. Well, the evangelists needed something to hang that prediction on, so they hung it on this disruptive action that he, prov- that he provoked that led to his crucifixion. Right? That's what he does. Now, how would we verify this? This is just my interpretation. How would I defend that? How would I provide evidence to defend this? Well, what I'd do is I would look at what happens at the beginning and the end of the story of the temple incident. In, um, in uh, Mark's gospel, we'll start with Mark and then we'll see how Ma- what Matthew and Luke do with it because this is a good example of Matthew and Luke uh, playing with Mark here to change the message slightly. In Mark, before he goes into the temple and does what he does, he sees a fig tree and he's hungry, so he goes to the fig tree to eat figs, but there are no figs because it's not the right season. And so does he say, oh, that's okay. No, he curses the fig tree. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then he wanders off to the temple, does what he does in the temple. And the next day when he's coming back to the temple, the disciples see, oh, the fig tree you cursed, it's withered, Lord, look. He curses a fig tree and it withers. In between... He disrupts things in the temple, and he condemns it, basically. Well, what does the curse of the fig tree mean? Well, if you read a little further on in the prophet Jeremiah, the next chapter after the one about uh, the cave of brigands, you'll see that the prophet Jeremiah uses 
the fig tree, the withered fig tree, the barren fig tree, as a symbol for the rebellious leaders of Jerusalem that God is going to come and destroy by destroying the temple. There's a historical precedent. There's a whole symbolism of how God deals, how how God punishes disobedience by allowing his temple to be destroyed that the gospel authors are simply adopting to the new condition, the new experience of the new temple's destruction. And uh, God says, I came uh, and I looked on the vine, there was no grapes. I looked at the fig tree, even the leaves were gone. Exactly what happens with, uh, with Jesus' fig tree. So essentially what happens is we have a historical tradition that Jesus cleansed the temple. Mark preserves the story. He relates it to the, pre, the, the foreordained catastrophe which he himself lived through of the destruction of the temple by having Jesus predict what was going to happen. And before and after the incident, Jesus curses. The cleansing has become a cursing. He doesn't cleanse the temple. He curses it to destruction. If you don't believe me, read on in Mark. Right after he says, the right after the disciples notice the fig tree is withered, um, he says, look, if you, if you pray that this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will be done for you. Have faith when you pray. He talks about prayer, just like he talked about a house of prayer a few minutes earlier. If you tell this mountain, well, which mountain is he talking about? He's not saying, this isn't the story about a generic mountain, if you have the faith to move mountains. No, he says, this mountain. Where are we, folks? We're in Jerusalem. This mountain, Mount Zion. If you tell Mount Zion... The, sacri- the architectural sacrament of God's kingdom be taken up and be destroyed in the sea, which is the symbol of chaos and decreation? It'll be done for you, says Jesus. Well, I guess we could say something like, if you dynamite the Vatican and have faith it will happen, it will happen. That's not, the, that's not a very edifying image. It's an image of destruction. So the evangelists who are now living through the actual destruction of the temple are reinterpreting, finding deeper significance in Jesus' temple action that relates to their story, that relates to their experience. The cleansing has become a cursing. Now, when we talk about the passion next time, we'll see how this theme of the temple's destruction works its way out to the conclusion. But let's just see what Matthew and Luke do with this. First of all, um, Matthew, for Matthew, Jesus is a son of David, right? And a son of David is, now David was the, he, it was, the temple was his idea, it was David's idea, and it was the son of David who built the temple, who consecrated the temple. Read First Kings, this was Solomon. If Jesus is a son of David, worth his salt, he would never curse the temple. He might criticize what's going on there. He would never, just as Jesus would never break the, just as Jesus would never break the Torah or command others to do so, read the Sermon on that, he would never challenge the institution of the temple. A son of David simply wouldn't do that. A Davidic Messiah would not do that. And so, guess what happens? Matthew preserves the story of the fig tree because what is it a story about? It's a story about judgment. And Matthew loves stories about judgment. So he keeps it, but he you know, here's the, here's the temple action on either side. There's the fig tree story. He takes the first part, he moves it to the other part, and he moves it after the temple story. So in other words, it can now be read as an independent story with no relevance to the temple. But it's a story of judgment. It fits Matthew's uh, program very nicely. 
So we have a, a shift, not, not a, an elimination of the story, but a shift of the story. Luke, on the other hand, whose technique is usually just to delete, deletes the story. It's not there. Instead, we have that parable of the fig tree that bore no fruit back in the parable section. And that wasn't about judgment. That was about Luke's favorite theme, which is mercy. Right? That's the story of the fig tree that didn't bear fruit. And so the owner of the orchard came and said, cut it down to the garden. The gardener said, no, wait, give it another year or two and see what happens. It's a story of mercy. So there was both Luke and Matthew found in this story of the temple action a disturbing implication. And they seek to remove it for whatever reason, either because they don't believe Jesus would do that or because they know Jesus didn't do that. We don't know. But the gospel authors have different takes on the significance of it, and they manipulate Mark's story to make their points accordingly. So what are we left with then? We're left with uh, a cleansing of the temple, which is now restored as a cleansing of the temple, right? The Matthew and Luke turn it back into a cleansing. It always was a cleansing in John, and Mark is the odd man out now who has a more radical version of things. Uh, this is often, like just like Mark's view of the disciples, very negative. Matthew and Luke, you know, sort of make it a little less negative. In the same way, they make this thing about the temple a little less negative. But they preserve the notion that Jesus condemned the leaders of the temple because they are the ones who are going to kill him. So the destruction of the temple, now let's just back up for a second. So how could the destruction of the temple be good news? Well, in the sense, it's not good news any more than Jesus' death in itself is good news because it represents opposition to God. But how can good news come out of this bad news? How can God's power be manifest through the powerlessness of Jesus on the cross? Can God's power be be made manifest in the destruction of his architectural sacrament? Yes, says the gospel authors. The destruction of the temple, because Jesus foresees it and in, in effect mandates it as God's punishment of those who will destroy him, the opponents of God's kingdom, the, the leaders of the temple. When the temple falls, the, the evangelists are saying, look, this is just evidence. This is brutal evidence. In, this is conclusive evidence that Jesus was in the right and the temple leaders were in the wrong, that they were on the wrong side of history. They were on the wrong side of the kingdom of God. This proves it. This is not a sign of God's impotence. It's just a sign that God has indeed vindicated Jesus. Now, there's more to it than that, obviously. That, and that alone wouldn't necessarily make it good news. But we think back to Mark um, and to the story which Matthew and Luke, or which Matthew preserves at least along with Mark, about prayer. Jesus says, if you tell this temple to be thrown into the sea, it will. Instead, when you pray, pray that God will forgive you of your sins uh, pray and, and forgive others, right? We have the teaching of forgiveness. Well, all this stuff about prayer, well, that's what the temple is for. Jesus is, in effect, mandating the effectiveness of prayer outside of a temple context. So you don't need a temple, Jesus is saying in Mark. You can do it without the temple. The temple might as well be destroyed. And they wouldn't, it's hard to serve stomach uh, a Jesus saying this. It's easy to stomach the evangelists an understanding Jesus' actions in this light, given what actually happened, because Jesus is a prophet. He knows what's going to happen. But here we come back to that final question about why does the temple matter? The temple matters because 
what happens to the temple has a bearing on what the kingdom of God means. The ultimate way to answer that will be with our discussion of the passion next time. I'm going to leave that till next week to see how the destruction of the body of Jesus is linked to the destruction of the building of the temple and, uh, and how this leads to a new interpretation of the communities of Matthew and Luke in their own experience in a post-temple era. So I think I'll stop there and open it up for questions and comments and reactions. Okay, so the question is, why would Gentiles bother going to the, t- the Jerusalem temple to exchange currency to buy animals to sacrifice there? Um, well, because many Gentiles in the ancient world uh, were worshipers of the Jewish God. They're called, in the book of Acts, they're called God-fearers or um, God-fearers uh, or worshipers of God. Um, we don't know how many of them there were. There may have been a, a minority, but we do know that, in, that throughout the Greco-Roman world, there were many Gentile sympathizers uh, of Judaism. Sympathizers in the sense that if you have a local synagogue in your city, you might actually be a patron of that synagogue, even if you don't worship there, or maybe you do worship there. doesn't mean you're going to become Jewish. just means you're worshiping the Jewish God. And there's an easy precedent in that in the prophets, which says that all nations will turn to worship the God of Israel. So uh, there was an easy fit-in for Gentiles who, wished, who were impressed with the Jewish conception of God and the idea of God represented by the temple, and they might very well want to participate in that. We simply don't know how many there were who would have used the temple, but again, the very fact that there's a whole area of the temple dedicated to the Gentiles suggests that they were substantial in numbers. But that's why. The Romans, as a group, would care less about that. The Romans were not really interested in this. This would be mainly Greeks and other you know, Syrians and other peoples of the area around who might worship in the Jerusalem temple. Of course, especially if you're a polytheist, there's no, nothing to prevent you from worshiping the Jewish God. You worship many other gods. So, uh, yeah, we shouldn't be surprised that there were Gentiles who worshiped there, but we don't know how significant their numbers were. So maybe we'll leave it at that and uh, move on to uh, the Paschal mystery in our final week. So thank you very much, and we'll see you next week. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.